Well, <clears throat> I cannot tell you the uh, appreciative the the appreciation that I have uh, for you this week and the, the smiling faces and you've accepted me and uh, want to share with you the word this morning out of uh, John chapter four and uh, I really want to mark with I really want to have you mark and I normally don't read two texts but I would really like to have you mark uh, John chapter four. And uh, I just want to read one sentence out of, uh, but just basically look at it in passing because it so confirms what we're talking about in John. Uh, Matthew chapter 11. We'll look at verse, verse 12. I'm even going to borrow my wife's Bible to read that out of the New King James because it's such a better translation. We've been looking at uh, John chapter 3 and even chapter 4 this week. And um, we looked at John chapter 4 the other evening. And uh, verses 1 through 6, and it gives us this picture of who Jesus is. And uh, he's this, uh, he is this, this one who, is, uh, who refers to himself as the Son of Man. Uh, he, is, uh, uh, he is overcoming. He is uh, he's succeeding. He's living the life that is pleasing. Uh, he's living the life that you and I want to live. Uh, but not only that, you see, he's, he's, not, he's not a superhuman, you know? He's not Superman. He's not Batman. He's not, uh, he's not this superhero that we all look up and think, boy, I wish, I wish Jesus was here. And, and, you know, and, and, and we, the language we use as, as Jesus comes and lives inside of us and His, and his spirit, uh, you know, he, he conquers the things in our life. And sure, that's true. The idea is from the scriptures is that the life that Jesus lived is the life that we live. Because the, the Holy Spirit, God himself was the one conquering in Jesus Christ. It wasn't Jesus himself. Jesus emptied himself, Paul says, of all that he knew was God. He, t- he laid aside everything that was going to separate him from you and him. Everything that was going to make, uh, make him different than you, he took that and set it aside. Now he came, was born without sin because he was intimate with God. He, she, he walked intimately, intimately with him, which means he lived under the entire Old Covenant. He lived under the Old Testament and never broke the Old Testament. He lived under the Old Te- Testament law, the Old Covenant law, never breaking the law. But that did not mean that he was superhuman because he was the same as, as you and I are. And everything that was uh, spectacular, everything that was fantastic in his life that seemed superhuman, probably was superhuman, but it was, the, it was the product of his father living in him. And as he had the father living in him, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. Yeah. And we have the same resource that he has. So I, I relate to him. So I not only relate to him in terms of the power that I have, but he relates to me in terms of the, the humanness. Uh, how he gets tired. I'm, I'm, ba- I'm banking on that he has, uh, I'm banking on that he had sinus trouble. That, it, that his feet hurt, you know, from time to time. That uh, living with 12 interns, oh, 12 disciples, man, that had to be tough, you know. And so this is the picture we get of him uh, in the first six verses, and yet we find him in the midst of ministry. And we really want to look at this morning, focus in on verses 4 uh, through 15, which is basically the core, the core middle of this section. And there's all kinds of things going on here. But everything in this passage seems to echo of what he's been talking about in John chapter 3. Because John chapter 3 really, I believe, is the building block for the rest of the book. John chapter 1 is the calling of his disciples, the introduction of his ministry. John chapter 2 is the inauguration of that ministry. He's coming out, he's beginning the signs, he's in the temple. John chapter 3, everyone's curious. And of course, Nicodemus comes up to ask what the whole deal is about. Hey, what's your, are you just some teacher? Uh, what are you teaching? Doesn't sound consistent. 
it. So he lays out the fundamental of the kingdom of God. It's mentioned several times. The kingdom of God is what I'm talking about. This is, this is the new covenant. God is coming to establish the kingdom. And John chapter 4 echoes of that. Let's, let's read it together. I'll read it for us. It's John chapter 4. Uh, John chapter 4, verses 4 through 15. And uh, this is how it reads. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw, uh, draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? I mean, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it ourselves? Uh, drank from himself, as did also his sons and flocks and herds. And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will be, uh, become a well, becoming him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water, so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus, Father, Never, ever, Father, help me. Never let me forget how thirsty I am. How desperate for you I am. I pray, Father, as we, as we gathered here this morning, and we have all kinds of circumstances, and, I, and I'm familiar with those. I'm human. I know what it's like to to get up and have all kinds of distractions and, and there's a number of different circumstances and they all overlap and, and who knows what kind of morning everyone has had in each individual case. But Father, as we come here this morning, may you just, may, I, may we know you are present. May there be a sense of your presence here. I pray, Father, that you might be able to speak in such a way that we'll be open to hear your truth. Prepare our minds. Open our eyes and give us insight into your word that we may be changed. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to encourage you this morning to be open. Uh, this is brand new study. Uh, I've been studying this and struggling through this passage uh, for a, a few weeks now. I have the opportunity. I, 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 get, I get a month to spend in a passage. I don't have to preach one every week or at least a different one every week or two, three every week like a pastor might. <laughs> Uh, but I get the opportunity and to travel and I get to just pour my life into a passage and let that, last, and that passage pour its life into me as he was talking about, Kyle was talking about in terms of Philemon. And uh, it's, it's so aggressive, the truth here. And uh, it's really uh, kind of spoken to me and, and I've, I've been convicted. There's a desperateness that's in this passage uh, Jesus is talking about the, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman about this gift. Um, the gift of, the gift of what he's been talking about in chapter 
in chapter 3. Uh, he talks about it in terms of living water, which we're going to get to in a little bit. But that living water is the new covenant. It's the new covenant. It's the kingdom, which is what he's talking about. And it's this gift. Uh, it's really interesting why he chooses that word. A gift, it's, it's free. Yeah, he hands it to you. And you can take it. You see, the problem is, is that um, what if you don't need it? Christianity is the oddest thing. Everyone needs it, but not everyone knows that they need it. And until you come to a point in your life, in the name of Jesus, I'm telling you this from the authority of Scripture, until you come to the point in your life where you are living in desperation, that you desperately need Him, I think you're in danger of not being a Christian. Because Christianity is a desperation. It's for those who are desperate. See, Pharisees didn't get in on this. See, the Pharisees, they never got on board. They didn't need him. The only illustration I've been able to come up with that rang in my ears is Christmas. My mom called me and says, what do you need? I thought, well, mom, I'm an evangelist. I'm rich. I don't need anything. I mean, you know, I don't, uh, I don't know if I need anything, really. I just go out to the store and take my credit card and buy it. That's our culture, you know. What do you need? I don't need anything. So she gets me stuff. That's not Christianity. You never, ever, you never, ever travel beyond the point of desperation. You never do. And if you ever travel beyond the point of desperation for him, oh, did you hear their song? I wanted to jump up and applaud this morning when I heard that. I need you. All I need is you. There's this desperation that's coming in, in the midst of this passage. And it's all over the kingdom. I want to share with you what he's been talking about and kind of give a refresher. Uh, you come back, all the language used in John chapter 3 and even the end of John chapter 2, actually all the way through chapter 2, is the business of the kingdom. It's the business of the kingdom. Uh, what he's been talking about, for instance, you come into John chapter uh, 2, uh, it's the end of John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, and what he's talking about here, all, see, all the miracles surrounding this, it's all pointing to the kingdom. Jesus comes into the, uh, the temple scene, and of course it's the, it's the Passover scene, and this is a little bit familiar, especially if you in the first service. But he come, you come into the Passover scene, and uh, it's this, there's, this, uh, there's this celebration in the air. Uh, every, everyone's exciting. Everyone's buzzing. It's once a year, and you're coming down. And it's more than just a gathering, you understand. It's more than just seeing old familiar faces. It's not that kind of thing. You see, it's this idea of they're coming and celebrating the, the providence of God. They're celebrating what God did in Egypt, which was powerful. God single-handedly intersected the lives of the Israelites and gripped them and yanked them out of the most powerful force of their day. Single-handedly. He said, I'm with you. And they come and celebrate this. And, and they come and, and you understand, they reenact the whole story. And you can, you can study this. There's authors who have just picked this apart. They go up and, and the whole Passover meal was about remembrance. And there was, two, there was really formal. And, and you would celebrate. You had toast at certain time. And you drank. And you cut meat at certain time. And, and Grandpa, the oldest one, he'd always tell the story. And all the kids would gather around and, and they would talk about how it had been passed down from generation to generation. And, and they'd retell all the plagues. And the kids would be going, whoa. That was it. And Jesus has been exposed to this growing up, you understand. And he comes into the temple. And, and not only that, but see, it's the inauguration of his ministry. You see, he is the fulfillment of all that's been talking about here. Amen. I mean, this is the long-awaited kingdom. This is the long-awaited time. The people of God, folks, had been suffering. 
You understand, Roman persecution in this time was just, oh, it was rampant. It was horrible. They hated the Romans. The Romans was oppressing them. They had all these strange laws, and you hear about them through the, the parables of Jesus. Uh, they had laws that if you were not, if you were a Roman citizen, if you were a Roman citizen, you could come up to someone, a Jew, wasn't a Roman citizen, you could come up to a Jew, and you could drop whatever you were carrying at their feet. And by law, they had to carry that one mile. That was a law. Whatever you were going to take, interrupt it. You're on your way to church? Guess you're going to be late. They didn't get you on your way to work? Hey, sorry. Well, by law, had to carry that thing one mile. You hear this in Jesus' parables when he says if they ask you to go one mile, you go two. They complained about the aggression of the, of the Roman people. And a Roman army was coming through a Jewish town. They could stop their army, go into any home, and take whatever they want to eat to feed their army. That was law. That was law. And if you got in the way, they punch you. And you cried about this to Jesus. And Jesus said, they strike you on your right. Turn to them also you are. Talked about that. So Roman persecution, you understand, was just rampant. And so the people were moaning and groaning. And this is, this is light considering to what, what they did in terms of lining the, the, the streets of Jerusalem with crosses and crucifying and the persecution that took place even before Christ's coming. I mean, this was, it was rampant. And so the people are crying for this coming king. They're crying to God. Haven't heard a prophet in 500 years. God has been silent. It's this dry, barren desert wasteland. And even as we see in the temple, there's this persecution going on from the, from the leadership of Israel. The Sadducees, who were the, the priests at that time. Isn't this interesting? You look just so excited that I'm telling you all this. See, the, 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 the Sadducees at that time, they, they had their own little culture away from the people. They had built this in their place. They had this housing complex. And they had built this walkway that goes directly to the temple. So they don't have to integrate. They don't have to mingle in with the people. And, and they had been persecuting. It was all about money. And See, this, 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 this is where, I mean, the people are persecuted from every side. Well, Jesus comes in. And he begins to preach. And he begins to do these miracles. And it's bringing up in their mind all, of, all, the, all the old covenant prophecies uh, in Zechariah and Malachi about the coming kingdom that's going to stretch over the whole world. This, that Israel is going to rise up. That God's going to establish his kingdom. And no one's going to be able to defend this thing. In fact, he talks about it in Zechariah and Malachi about the war horses will be taken away from Ephraim. Because this kingdom is going to be so secure that you don't even need to defend it. That's how secure God's going to make it. Isn't that phenomenal? And see, this is echoing in their mind. And so they see Jesus doing these miracles. They see him doing these signs and these, these wonderful things. And they're cheering to him. And they come in verse 23. And many, it says, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing at the temple feast. And believed in his name. They came and said, you've got to be the one. We believe. And they authentically believed. But you see, the most strange thing in verse 24 is that Jesus would not entrust himself to them. They came and said, we believe you're the king. And Jesus says, I don't want to be your king. Because the king that they wanted was not the king that he had come to be. Uh, the di disciples struggled with this. The disciples were always reminding Jesus, are you going to establish the kingdom now? They're expecting him to walk down to Rome and just suck Caesar right in the jaw and take that thing. But see, he never does that. He never does that. And he gets in this argument with it. And I'll, I'll remind you of this. He gets in this argument with the kingdom. He's trying to set the leaders of Israel straight on this. And uh, he goes through Matthew about the parables of the kingdom. And he comes in this one specific part. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. Oh, I fibbed to you. It's not in Matthew. It's in Luke. It wasn't a meaningful fib, though. It's an accidental fib. 
talking about the kingdom. And of course, uh, this is what they say. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observance. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is. Because the kingdom of God happens within you. So now the kingdom of God is not this physical kingdom that's going to pop out of the sky or this physical thing. It's the rule of God as it is in heaven taking place within a person. And the kingdom of God is so powerful, which echoes of this eternal life concept. See, the kingdom of God is so powerful that it does not change your circumstances. It, it's that it's so powerful your circumstances don't matter. Come on, that's good truth, man. That's good truth. See, the quality of life we have in Jesus is so, it's so incredible that you can have the same quality of life as the man on death row. And you're saying, what? How can that be? It's because that quality of life is so secure in him that the physical circumstances of your life does not matter. Are you awake? Are you, you want me to run? You want me to start running? <laughs> this, is, this is the kingdom. This is what he was so excited about. That God's kingdom was being established and they were missing it. But see, it's all about the kingdom. This is what he's talking about. The rule of God, that this quality of life that has taken place inside. Now he explains this to Nicodemus. You come into chapter 3 and try to contain yourself. I know you're excited. But he comes into chapter 3 and Nicodemus, see he's been hearing him talk about the kingdom. He sees the miraculous signs. He sees what he is doing. In fact, Nicodemus says in chapter 3, uh, verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. He's saying, hey, we know. We know you are a teacher who has come from God. The things you are doing, it is impossible to be doing those things outside of the movement and activity of God. And you've been talking about this kingdom thing. But see, Jesus, your theology on the kingdom is just a little bit shaky. So he comes up to straighten Jesus out. And so what's chapter 3, verses 1 through 21 all about? It's all about the kingdom. Listen to what Jesus says. Verse 3. In reply, Jesus declares, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God. He can't see that thing. Gives him insight into it. Nicodemus is a little bit uh, confused by the born again language. So he comes down in verse 5 and he says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God. See, this thing is all about the kingdom. This is all about the kingdom. It's all about the inward rule and presence and conquering of Christ. This is what he's talking This is the kingdom. And he's been explaining this to Nicodemus as we've been talking about this week. It's this life of repentance. It's I turn from a life of relying on my own self, my own kingdom. I turn from a life of, uh, I turn from a life of, of, of making my own way, living out of my own resource. I can't live that way anymore. It doesn't bring peace. doesn't bring uh, life. doesn't bring happiness. And I turn to a whole new life where he infills me with his spirit and enables me to live the quality of life that his son lived. Amen. This is the kingdom. Wow. Yeah, I know it's exciting, isn't it? So, all, this is all that he's talking about in this passage. He's been, he's been brooding over this thing. He's been talking about this thing. This is the kingdom of God. Now, uh, in, in the other Gospels, uh, he, they write all different. But they're all writing the same thing. You understand that. And uh, Matthew comes right out and he gives you these statements. Danny Goddard, Harris Chapel Church of the Nazarene. He'll probably hear this. But um, he writes this statement. Uh, he preached, or he didn't write this, he wrote these sermons. He preached 66 sermons in a row on Matthew 6.33. I know, you think I'm bad. <laughs> this guy. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And that idea of seeking is not this, yeah, you know, 
Come to church on Sunday. Yeah. Pay your tithe. Give the evangelist fifty dollars. Come on. You see? That's not that idea of seeking. It's not, you know, don't smoke, drink, or chew. Uh, try to be good. Don't watch MTV. You know, it's not, not that. That's not, see the idea, it's hungering after. It's this, it's, it's this ring of this desperation. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. And this is the idea of the kingdom. It, in one breath, he talks of in our passage that this is the free gift. It, it, it's handed freely. But in the same sense, unless you're seeking, unless you're desperate for it, you take this free gift and you kind of just toss it aside. He kind of just lay it over. It's really, and again, the, again, the other gospel writers are really directing this. They give you these scriptures. Seek first the kingdom of God. You know, seek me and you'll find me. And they quote these and they talk about the seeking language. We're going to look at some of that in a bit. But John, he, he, he encloses this within the story of this Samaritan woman. And he uses the physical circumstances of her, of her life to awaken her to her need for the kingdom. Basically what he does is he shows her her desperate need for this living water. And then at the end of the story, he conveys that over to her desperate need for the kingdom even though she doesn't know she needs it. Even though she doesn't know she needs it. Now it may be confusing for us, but let's look at it together. Verse, uh, let's start with verse 7 at John chapter 4. This Samaritan woman comes to draw water uh, at, this, at this well. And, of course, Jesus says, will you give me a drink? His disciples go to buy food. She comes out at noon, which in this day and time, folks, was not the time you came out to draw water. It wasn't the time you came out to draw water. Uh, you came out at the end of the day. Or you came out at the beginning of the day. See, it's, it's, it's noon. It's in the heat of the day. And it's tiring. That isn't the, day you, that isn't the time you come out. That's when it's hardest. So all the women would come and they'd flock together. Women do that. They just, they all go to places together, at least normally. And uh, they would all come out and do their thing uh, at the same time in the morning or in the evening. That's what, when they would do that. You don't go out in the afternoon. So it tells you she was out by herself. You see that? She's out by herself. And also, this is outside of town. This is outside of town. More than likely, even this, and the commentators uh, comment on this, more than likely, she would be taking, there's one, a well on the inside of town. Hey, that's where she would possibly go. But she comes all the way out here in the heat of the day by herself. Now, why would she do that? Well, she's an outcast, man. The, the, the passage lets us, it gives us insight that she's an adult. She's had five husbands, not, I mean, the one she's with, even. And so she's probably, she, she's probably not married. And in this day, you can't, you see, women couldn't speak for themselves in public. I mean, they could yell, but they had no clout. And, and that culture, see, there was, it was so difficult for her. And, and she had no way to provide for herself. And she was just, well, again, what is she doing? She's just surviving. She's living out of her own resource. She's doing the best way. She, I, I, I'm not convinced that she's just an evil, mean, inwardly bad person. She's not, man. She's just surviving. She's doing the best way she can. She's surviving the only way she knows how. And she, she, she's seeking love and acceptance in the wrong places. And, and you notice none of the men get outcast. None of the people with her get outcast. Just like in chapter 8 when the Pharisees bring that woman and throw her down. She's been caught in adultery. Caught in adultery? Caught in adultery? Where's the guy? Yeah, men haven't changed. They don't... <laughs> so she's surviving the only way she knows how. You see that? And she's an outcast. She comes all by herself and she comes out to this well. And of course Jesus speaks to her and says, hey, give me a drink. And she's, she's just totally stunned. First of all, she didn't think he was going to talk to her. He's a Jew. He's from, and Jews and Samaritans did not speak to one another. 
I mean, they didn't associate with one another. She says, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. I'm not only, I'm not only a Samaritan, but I'm second class. And that day and day, went second class. No way you should be talking to me. How can you ask me for a drink? She's an outcast. Jesus says, oh, he just kind of chuckles to himself. If you only knew, Jeremiah translation, if you knew the gift of God and who it is you ask, or who does ask you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you only knew, he sees her desperation. He sees her state. She has, she has turned to the lowest form of life among her people, folks. She, she has no friends. She has no one to lean on. She is used. She is taken advantage of. She is surviving by the skin of her teeth, you understand. He sees her desperation. And he says, if you only knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, boy, you'd ask him. You would have asked him to give you living water. And of course, she doesn't understand. And she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. What are you talking about? Where can you get this living water? Surely you're not greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself and did his sons and flocks and herds. And Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. And then he talks about the living water, but whoever drinks the, uh, the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And of course, that's all picturesque language. But he ties that, stick with me, he ties that into her present, uh, her present circumstance. The big deal is not about uh, water, you understand. See, the big deal is not about uh, just, even, even the big deal is not about her circumstance of getting water. Because if, if she was accepted back into her community and she had to go get water with the girls, she actually wishes she could go get water with the rest of the ladies. She doesn't mind the chores. That's part of life. She wishes she was accepted. But Jesus sees her. She, she dreads doing this. See, every day they see her coming out of her establishment. There she is. No one wants to talk to her. They keep their kids away from her. They're telling stories about her. She's the talk of the town. She's got her water pot or whatever she cares. She's going to the outside of town all by herself in the middle of the day. Well, why, who's that? Why is she doing that for? Oh, you must be new in town. You want to stay away from that lady right there. See, she goes through that, folks. Every single day she goes through that. Every single day she goes through that. And Jesus is bringing this to the forefront of her mind as an avenue of saying, do you realize how desperate you are in your situation here? Listen to how she responds. Look at verse 15. Sir, give me this water so that I, don't have to, I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Oh, wouldn't that be great? So I don't have to go through that. I could hide in my little hole in the earth. I could hide. Again, she's coming back to how she can fix her circumstances. But the idea here, what John is trying to get us to see, is let us realize the desperation the desperation and hey how desperate she is for the kingdom how desperate she is for fulfillment I can relate to that and I struggle and I, I'm not I mean see I used to struggle with being judgmental because I run into sometimes church people who are not desperate and they should be in the name of Jesus they should be See, when, when I talk about being saved, it's not this little thing of, yeah, I got a certificate and I came down and I started going to church. Folks, I was saved. I was dying. I, I told a little bit of my testimony in the first service. I was bad. I was, I was done. I was, see, I don't, have the, I don't have the background of a preacher. I was a drug addict and I was, I was kicked out of the Marine Corps. I couldn't get a job. I had a bad discharge. I weighed 137 pounds. I had no home, no money. Living with a Christian family in California. I was desperate. And Jesus says, I want, I want to call you to preach. And I just laughed. 
I said, you got to be kidding me. Don't mess with me. Don't tease me. I'm not preacher material. I don't, I don't have it together. Came up with all kinds of stuff. See, I, I don't have anything to offer you. See, it's, I'm a losing investment. See, take all that and dump it into somebody else. I was so desperate. And he said, no, no, no. You're a prime candidate. You're a prime candidate. Because you have nothing to lean on. See, you, have, you, have, you don't have any way of accomplishing what I want you to accomplish. You don't have a chance in the world of living the way that I want you to live, Jeremiah. You're, you're perfect. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? It doesn't make any sense to me. This is what he's talking about in this passage. That the kingdom of God is for the hungry. It's for the desperate. It's for the desolate. It's not for the rich. See, there's this, there's this, there's this, we, we call ourselves a Christian nation, which we don't. We're not a Christian nation. We're a nation freedom of religion. That's it. Freedom to worship any way we have to. But we're not a Christian nation. And we're not hungry. And we don't see the miracles of God that other countries do. Why? Because we don't lean on him. We lean on MasterCard. We lean on Visa. We come on Sunday, uh, Sunday morning and praise Visa. Our jobs. See, we don't know what it's like to actually hunger. I mean, have you ever lived, and some of you have. <laughs> don't tell You're going to come afterwards and start telling me stories, which are great, which I've heard. See, I've never in my time, and we, we lived poor, but I never in my time, in my life, did not know where the next meal was coming. And have to depend on him like that. See, that's radical dependence. That's if you don't come through, we're not making it. See, there's, there's no nest egg in this. There's, there's no last resort in this. These are for the kingdom. Now, you don't have to go and give all your money away and move out on the street for that. It's realizing that even though you have those things, those are not what you need. You need him. Amen. That, is a, that is a tremendous crossover. That, that's not, that they just, it doesn't click for some reason. It clicked for me. Now, the other gospel writers talked about this. Uh, for instance, our passage I asked you to mark in chapter 11. This is, li- this is so neat. I like Jesus. Because he, he preaches in such un, un, uh, you might say untraditional ways. Uh, unconventional means is the way he presents the word. It's, it's wonderful. I love his language. In chapter 11, he's been talking about John the Baptist. Pick it up at verse 11. And he's been talking about John the Baptist. And at, John, at the beginning of John the Baptist, from the moment the Holy Spirit comes in, in, the, in the womb of, uh, of his mother, and he, he leaps in the womb, and he's born, and he's, he's thrust by the Spirit out into the wilderness, and he's preparing the way. That's where the kingdom of God, it, it becomes available to men. Now listen to the way Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. In verse 11, he says, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not uh, risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the days of John the Baptist until now, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Don't run away with that in the NIV. Who has the New King James? Honey, can I borrow your Bible? Thank you, dear. I like how the New King James talked about it. It's a more adequate and literal translation. Listen to this. Verse 12, chapter 11. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. That translation is in the passive tense. Look it up. I know you all have Greek lexicons at home. It's in the passive tense, which means the kingdom of heaven is not actively forcing. It's being acted upon. Passive tense. It suffers violence. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Why? Because, and you and, because the violent 
take it by force. Here's what Jesus is, here's the picture that Jesus is painting. That the kingdom of heaven comes into view and there are people who are so desperate, who are so longing, who are so hurting, who are so bad, they're taking it by force. I want it. I have to have it. I have, I have no other choice. There is this hunger that is so great and there's this need that is so driving them that they're literally going to steal that thing. That's right. That's what he's talking about. Jesus comes and says, for those of you who are like that, come on, we need you. For everybody else, don't need you. See, parables are all about this. Uh, it talks about the pearl of great price. The treasure in the field. It talks about the kingdom. If the kingdom is so, see, so desperate that literally you cut body parts off if it's going to keep you out of it. See, I, oh, I need the kingdom so bad that if my eye is going to prevent me from getting it, I pluck that thing out. See, if my foot gets in the way of me getting into the kingdom, I'm so desperate that I cut that thing off. Because I've got to have the kingdom. I've got to have the kingdom. It's my only, only. This is, this is the gospel message. The violent men has to do with this, and it's usually used in a negative context. These violent, abrasive, mean forceful. I mean, they're just, they're theft. They're thieves. As a side note, would you be willing to let your perspective be changed to the people in the world? Folks, I'm telling you, and I talked to a man before the service. Uh, I don't know if you're in here, probably in Sunday school. He's so worried about his son. Went back and forth from alcohol to drugs. He goes, but what you said makes sense. He's desperate, man. He's looking for peace and happiness and fulfillment. You look at the kids in the projects. You look at the kids in the, in the, in the areas of town that don't have any money. And you criti we, we criticize them for stealing. Well, no, I'd steal too if I can't have any food. See, they're, they're, there's such longing to fit in. There's, there's, there's such need to be acceptance that they break into cars and they steal what they cannot have. They're surviving, man. C can you see that? This is the world we live in. A world who's so desperate. Which is why Jesus says, hey, if they take your cloak, give them. Give it to them, man. Because obviously they need it more than you. Hey, if they smack you on the right cheek, they're frustrated. They can't handle it. Turn them to your left. Jesus became the avenue for the desperate. Which scares me to death. Because sometimes I don't need him. You know, there have been days in my life and I, hey, I'm, not, I'm embarrassed about this, but there's been days in my life that I haven't talked to him. I'll wake up and begin my day and dawn on him about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I get up and I have my golf, which takes me all day because I'm no good, and I, and I visit with friends and I go out to eat and I come home and I think, oh, yeah. I mean, I had my devotions, but there was no this... God forbid he's become a hobby in my life. Did you know that for some, Christianity becomes a hobby? played basketball in college. All right. And I was also in the Marine Corps, and I was, I was very good. I was going to go to Puerto Rico, and I was planning to play on their pro, pro team. My coach was a pro, played on the pro team, and before I got into drugs and started losing weight drastically, uh, I was really good. So I, I, I had this hobby of basketball. Every morning, I'd get up, and I'd do my devotions. Basketball. I'd do my push-ups. Makes me strong. I'd do my sit-ups. Tightens my abs do my leg works, go to the gym, I'd work out. Wouldn't want to be big, wouldn't to be fast and work on my leaping ability. It's my devotion every morning, religiously. 
religiously. Talked to my coach every day. Called him. He worked right up the street from me at my shop. I'd go down and talk to him, and he'd give me tips on my game. We'd study plays together, get on the Internet. My life was full of that, religiously. It was a hobby. I talked to him. I leaned on him for advice. I leaned on him. See, he had my future in his hands. See, I'm going to go to Puerto Rico and I'm going to play basketball. So I talked to him day in and day out. I had to have him. But then I got a new hobby. After basketball went sour and my, my ankles gave out, I got this new hobby, Christianity. Yeah, it's a hobby. really don't need it. I mean, I could live without it. But I get up every morning and I do my devotions. You know, my spiritual exercise. Makes me strong. Read my Bible a little bit. I call my coach. I talk to him throughout the day before I eat usually. Once in a while, if I remember. And uh, we talk back and forth. Because he's got my future in his hands, you understand. He's got my future in his hands. He's got this mansion in the sky. It's a hobby. Try to remember to keep up with him and call him. It's not this. You see, I wake up in the morning, and you may not be like this, and I'm, you probably can't relate to this, and I hope you understand me, but I wake up in the morning, and if I don't start thinking about Jesus, I start thinking about what I used to think about when I wake up in the morning. I think about parties that I went to. I think about old relationships I had. And if I'm not close with him, I struggle all day long. Because I am desperate for him. And if I do not keep him in my mind, if he's not close with me, I am lost in the name of Jesus. I am desperate for him. And I used to be so guilty. I used to think, I'm, not, I'm terrible. You, I take up all your time. And I come into a passage like this and I find out, you're supposed to be that way. You're supposed to be that way. That you never get out of that. That there's this desperateness. That there's this desperateness that if you were a child of God, you got to have him. There is no, there is nothing else. See, that's what church is about. I have to be here on Sunday morning. See, I have to. If I don't, if I don't come, I can't survive, man. See, I have to walk close with him. I have to praise him. I have to be next to him. Because I know what life is like without him. Right. And I wonder that sometimes people have walked with him so long, they forget what life is like without him. And they live in this hobby and there's no desperateness. And there's this beginning to look down the nose. And, and there's this lack of understanding. And, and there's this losing touch with the world because they don't understand them. I understand them. They're not bad. They're just hurting. See, Jesus never, ever, ever comes up to a tax collector and just reams him out and says, get your act together. Traitor to their own people. He was like that fella in our society who turned and went with Osama bin Laden, that American that we're going to they're going to put to death or at least trying to do so see that was the tax collector and Jesus says come down let's go to your house have lunch no wonder they were irate what was wrong with the tax collector he was surviving see what was wrong with a prostitute who was breaking homes she was surviving see what was wrong with a thief he was surviving what's wrong with the drug addict in our society what's wrong with the homosexual in our society can I be really abrasive with you? Why don't we reach homosexuals? Because we call them gay wads. I won't go through the other names we call them. We make these jokes about them. I hear teenagers going, oh, you're gay. Oh, they've become the epitome of our punchlines and our jokes. 
See, Jesus never referred to him like that. When he comes to this woman at the well, see, she's not a tramp. She's not sleazy. She's none of those kinds of things. See, we don't look down at her. He didn't look down his nose at her. He said, oh, his heart broke. He said, oh, you desperately need the kingdom. She didn't understand. So he took a physical circumstance in her life to reveal the spiritual reality in her life. Are you still desperate? Are you still desperate? If you're not, I'm so sorry for you. Because you should be. You should be. There there should be this crying on the inside of, I can't live one minute without you. Because one minute without Jesus in religion is a Pharisee, folks. And there's no redemption found there. There's judgmentalism found there. There's looking down your nose at people right there. There's they don't measure up right there. That's what religion without Jesus. That's what religion without desperateness brings. There's this separation. You need him, I don't. You desperately need to get to that. See, I see this in churches of revival. I see parents who mean well, who bring their kids into the churches, and they don't listen to a thing I say. All they do is apply the whole thing to their kids. I know who needs to hear that one. And I say, you need to hear that one. In the name of Jesus, you need to hear that one, man. See, you never arrive. And I fall guilty to that. I'm desperate for him. Because I don't have it all together. I don't have what it takes to be an evangelist. I don't have I don't have anything. I have him. Oh, I have him. Are you living with that radical dependence this morning? Are you living with that radical desperateness this morning? If you're not, let's come back to him. And maybe pray a dangerous prayer. God reveal how desperate I am. Hey man, hey God, take away the comfortable circumstances in my life till I see the desperateness in my life. Because the kingdom of God is for the hurting, the die, the poor, the naked, the wretched. It's not for those the invitation went out and no one showed up. I showed up to church. I mean, come on, revival? Every service? I don't need it. I'm fine. Do outreach this week. I love you, Jesus. And when I say I love you, it's because I need you. And I'm owing you. I am so in debt to you. I don't deserve the life that I have. I don't work. All I do is travel around and tell people about you. You meet every need. Finances come out of the woodwork to keep us going. You keep me healthy. You give my wife grace to put up with me and my shortcomings. You give me grace. You take an uneducated man and you give him insight and eyes to see the truth of your word. I want to grow closer to you. I want to be so tight with you. Because being tight with you is succeeding. Being tight with you is where I'm safe. You are. Those are not punchlines. You are my fortress. You are my refuge. You are my sense of security. Father, don't ever let me get big time. Don't ever let me get too good of a preacher that I don't need to lean on you. Don't ever let me get too financially stable where I don't have to just say, hey God, unless you come through this week, I'm not going to make it. 
Don't ever let me get too confident and polished in presentation that I don't lean on you and wonder. Don't let me get secure. As Jesus walked, absolute dependent, if he didn't find money in fish's mouth, he's going to go hungry. Would you let my wife and I live like that? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want to respond this morning. Not because that's the thing to do. Not because that's what I ought to do because of a message like this. But because I so desperately need him. I desperately need him. Do you want to fall on your face this morning before him and say, I desperately need you and I want to show my gratitude for you and I, hey, I'm sorry, God, that I have become self-reliant. I'm sorry that I've leaned on theology. I'm sorry that I've, I've not been open to teaching. I'm sorry that I've outgrown you. We could have the worship or the uh, pianist come and play softly and your pastor is going to come in a moment and dismiss the service. I really appreciate you. I can't thank you enough. You've been so warm and kind to my wife and I and you've smiled and you've listened to me and I really do appreciate you so much. Thanks for letting me break the word. It's the truth, I believe. Would you like to respond this morning? If you don't know him, if you've struggled with being dependent, let's gather before him. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word.